Good morning. How's everybody doing? Peachy. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. We'll be finishing chapter 1 today. As you're doing that, tell me about James. What do we know about James? James is probably Jesus' little brother, right? And so what do we know about James if we know that? He never measured up. Yeah, that's one thing for sure. He never measured up. He was that little brother. <laughs> what else do we know? He's from a rural small town, right? He's from Galilee. What'd you say? He didn't believe in Jesus at first, right? We, we see that uh, his brothers doubted him. We see that in John. We see that in other places in the New Testament. His dad was Joseph the carpenter. So he's a rural blue-collar guy, spent some time rejecting Jesus, and now here he is, pastor of the church at Jerusalem. His flock has been scattered. He's writing to them. They have been undergoing various trials. James is a blue-collar, no-nonsense kind of guy. He's a shut-up-and-get-to-work kind of guy, and so James is a shut-up-and-get-to-work kind of book, right? So a lot of James is really practical, really hands-on. And that makes James really personal, and uh, James doesn't leave a lot of room for excuses. We're going to feel that this morning. So, so far, what has James been talking about? He's been talking about, oh, you guys feel asleep. Trials. He's been talking about trials, right? Difficulties, pains, the difficult things that we go through in life. Now, today we're shifting to talking about anger and about what it means to really live like a Christian. So here's the question I want to open with. Why on earth would James move from talking about trials to talking about anger? Trials make us angry. It's not a mystery to Anna. It's a mystery, let me tell you, it's a mystery to the commentators. The commentators are like, I don't know what these like, verses in anger here or about anger are doing here. Uh, anyway, uh, let's move on. And they're all like that. They're all just like, for some reason, James sticks a couple proverbs about anger in here. It doesn't seem like a mystery to me. Maybe I'm an idiot. What are the trials that you're facing in life? What do they do to you? Trials are troubles or difficulties or things outside of our control. They're things that we don't want. They're things that disrupt us, things that we don't expect, things that disrupt our lives, things that we have no control over, right? And when those types of things happen to us, what do we do? I just get happy. My response to the things that make me feel out of control is joy. Because James says our response should be joy. So I don't know about you guys. My response is just joy. It's not to be angry. James says respond with joy. So I respond with joy. And I just need my lollipop and to click my heels together. And then I'm just a happy Christian, right? Anybody who knows me can attest that when I'm driving down the Lloyd Expressway and I experience trials of various kinds, that my response is joy. When my kids get sick and vomit all over the carpet like they've been doing, <laughs> when it goes down the line like all seven of them, you know, just boom, 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 <laughs> joy, right? When I get sick and my life is disrupted and my plans are disrupted and my work is disrupted and my happiness is never disrupted, it's just more joy. Joy on joy. <sighs> when our lives are disrupted, when trials come, when we have our comfort and peace disturbed, we often just get 
joyful when they get angry. We get angry, don't we? We get angry. And so because James is like a human being and not some disembodied brain who lives in a seminary and is paid to ponder these things, he understands that I think talking about trials is a good place to talk about anger. So he's going to take that thread. He's going to start pulling on it this morning. So James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, so let's talk about anger for a second. Is all anger wrong? Is all anger sinful? No, of course not. How many of you have been keeping up in your, like you've started a New Year Bible plan and you've like actually followed through and kept up on it? I should put my hand down. But In my Bible reading plan, we were, I've been reading Mark and so not too long ago, uh, there's this, one of my favorite, this is absolutely one of my favorite stories about Jesus. It's in Mark chapter three and uh, Jesus is teaching and it's the Sabbath, it's the Lord's day. And there's a man there with a withered hand. And all the Pharisees are there. And they're looking at the man with the withered hand and they're saying, it's the Sabbath. And we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. I wonder what Jesus is going to do. I hope he heals this guy so that we can accuse him of breaking God's law. And Jesus knows this. He understands what's going on, and he understands how deeply twisted it all is. So Jesus, being Jesus, just straight up calls it out. He says, let me ask you guys a question. Is it uh, better to do good on the Sabbath or to cause harm? Nobody answers. And he asks it again in a different way, and nobody says anything. Because they don't want him to heal this guy, but they want him to heal this guy so they have a reason to accuse him. And then it just says that Jesus got angry. And he told the man, right in front of everybody, to stretch out his hand. And he stretches out his hand and it's healed. I love that story because I love, I love how Jesus' compassion moves to the weak and defies the strong. And he's angry with them at their hardness of heart. So not all anger is bad, is it? Anger reveals the things that we love and care about. There's some things that are worth being angry about, right? If you hurt my wife or kids, I'm gonna be angry. That's a good thing. There's sin and injustice in this world that's worth being good and angry about. And God's, or the Bible says that God is angry at the sin and injustice of this world. And people like to act like that's a bad thing. Like, my God doesn't get angry at the sin and injustice of this world. What God is that? Is it Moloch? Because he's not angry at the bloodshed of the innocents. But the God of the Bible is. You want a God who's angry at sin and injustice. But the truth is, most of our anger reveals that we care about the wrong things, doesn't it? It reveals that we care about the wrong things in the wrong way. Most of our anger reveals that we think the world should bend to us. It should bend to our desires. It should bend to our comfort. It should bend to our ease. So the clearest example of this in my life, the easiest one to point out really is driving, and especially on the Lloyd Expressway, right? I hate driving on the Lloyd Expressway. And what happens if you watch, you know, I've gotten better, but still, if you watch what I say and how I act, you realize 
that I think what should happen when I'm on the Lloyd Expressway is like Moses parted the Red Sea. Everybody should just be out of my way. And I become the standard of righteous driving on the Lloyd Expressway. So if you're going faster than me, you're a reckless jerk. And if you're going slower than me, you're an inconsiderate jerk. Because I have perfectly calibrated myself to the righteous way to drive, which depends on how I feel at the moment and whether I'm late or not and all kinds of other things, but it's right at that moment in time. Okay, so I know none of you are that way. You're much more godly than me, so let's talk about you. How about your family? How about your kids? How about your marriage? When you walk in the door, you come home from work, are you thinking about men? Are you thinking about the day that your wife had? Are you considering how to make them feel loved? Are you thinking about the kids who've been at school all day, have homework? Maybe they're just looking forward to dad getting home. Maybe they have cherished the idea that dad's going to play ball with them or something like that. Are you feeling like you just spent the whole day working and you deserve to be left alone? You spent the whole day at home with little kids. What you really deserve now is a break and some help with dinner. You spent the whole day at school. You deserve a break to play outside, play some Nintendo. Definitely don't deserve to have to do chores to help out around the house. The whole focus is what? It's what I deserve. So everyone else's life should bend to mine because I deserve what I want. Everything should revolve around me. Our sense of justice is offended. We deserve things we're not getting. And we are very far from God in those moments. Because God's not that way. We do well to slow down and take a step back because God himself is slow to anger and he doesn't have to be. It's a choice. God has the right to demand perfect obedience and require instant justice for every single failure of every one of our lives. And so when it comes to deserving things, he's the one who deserves it all. But he's slow to anger. When he reveals himself to Moses and declares his name, he says what? The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger. First description he gives of himself, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, in covenant love. We see that all over the place in Scripture. And for every time in the Bible that we see God righteously lash out and strike someone dead, we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times of God being patient and merciful and gracious with people who deserve to be struck dead. And that's the way we experience him in our lives too, right? How many of you look out at the world and think, man, God is just constantly like, boom, laying it down. He's striking the wicked down left and right, like... Scary place to be. And how many of you look at the world and are like, man, I wish God would strike the wicked down. I wish he wasn't so patient. <laughs> when you look at the world, what do you actually feel? Sometimes we see people get immediate consequences for their actions, right? God acts. God executes justice. God executes poetic justice. But mostly what we see is that God is slow to anger and abounding in love, patient, kind, desiring that all should be saved, as Peter puts it. And that means that when we are quick to anger, we are not like God. 
If we're angry all the time, we are not like God. So the question is, when we're angry, are we angry about the things God's angry about? And are we angry in a way that's appropriate for us as sinful, fallen people? Are we patient as God is patient? Are we tender and loving as God is tender and loving? God is angry with sin, right? He is angry with the wicked. But God loves the world. And if God were not a God of love, he could have stuffed it all out a long time ago and been perfectly justified in doing it. Instead, he's been patient with all of us. So God's angry with sin. We have to acknowledge it. We have to accept it. We ought to love it. But when it comes to us being angry with sin, where do we start? Do we start with the evil out there or do we start with the evil in our own hearts? It's really easy to be angry at the evil out there, isn't it? To give ourselves permission to be angry at everything out there and to never deal with the sin of our own hearts. When it comes to sin, we have to start with ourselves, and there's no better place to start with our own, than with our own unrighteous anger. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about trials, and when we're in the midst of a trial, we experience a lot of emotions. Fear, sadness, loneliness, anxiety, insecurity. For many of us, we can do a quick change routine where we translate all of those emotions into one emotion that's strong, and that's anger. And why do we do that? It's because those emotions make us feel vulnerable and out of control. And in a trial, we don't have control over the situation. There's not much we can do about a car wreck. There's not much we can do about a cancer diagnosis or a layoff at work or a stomach bug. Those things just happen. And they leave us feeling powerless and impotent and afraid. And so what we do is we channel those feelings, our fear, our doubt, our anxiety, our sadness, into an emotion that feels like it has power to change the story, that feels like it has some potency, that feels like it has the ability to help us regain some control. Anger. And then we lash out with our words and with our deeds. We're feeling vulnerable, so we make a show of strength and power in the form of anger. We want to fight. We want to wound. We want to go on the attack. We want to feel like we have a chance to regain control of things and to cover how out of control we actually feel. And that's why James says, be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's impatient. It's grasping for control. It's covering for our weakness and our vulnerability. It's trying to seize power. And so anger often then betrays actually how weak and small and vulnerable and impotent we feel. Once you know that and understand that, it unlocks a lot of doors. Angry people are often people who just feel really small and vulnerable and afraid. And that's completely unlike God, who is in fact all-powerful and never needs to be reactionary, who can afford to be a patient and slow to anger. And part of what we need to learn is that we are God's children and God's on our side and we don't have to feel so threatened that we become reactionary, angry people ourselves or we continue as reactionary, angry people. 
once we've been adopted into his family. Emotional self-control is not something that we value or practice as a culture, is it? You want a clear, easy example of this? You turn to social media. Social media is hardwired to make us angry. We doom scroll, we fall for rage bait, because the algorithms are hungry for attention and engagement, and strong emotion gets the job done. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they all profit off of our anger because it gets you to stay, it gets you to scroll, it gets you to respond, it gets you to click, and eventually see more ads in the process. Your lack of impulse control, your lack of emotional self-control in those moments is their friend. They want you to have no control. System is wired to keep you a slave and prisoner of your feelings and impulses, especially your anger. So you can be facing something difficult in your life and instead of turning to God, before you have a chance to even think about it, you can be online, you can pull out your phone, and you can angrily complain and vent to the whole world. And then what happens? You can get instant feedback, instant validation, instant affirmation. People will respond to you in real time. They'll affirm your anger. They'll affirm your complaints. They'll vent for themselves. Or they'll come at you with their own anger and they'll vent about you. And then, oh, look, there's a cat video. And now I feel happy. I've had some catharsis and I've let the anger out and now I'm having some joy and I've just had this ritual experience of having dealt with my emotions and resolved them, except I haven't dealt with anything. And oh look, those boots are cute. I kind of want those. They'll make me look better and feel better. And now I've vented and I've seen a cat video and I've got boots on the way and I've got a dopamine hit coming. Without realizing it, you've just been puppet, puppeteered. And you don't even need social media for most of this, right? You just need a couple people you can vent to anytime you feel you have a problem. Got your cell phone in your pocket, something happened, I'm angry, I want to punch someone. I shouldn't, but I do want release, and I don't want to turn to God and deal with my heart, so what do I do? I, before I think about it, I grab my phone, and I'm texting my wife or my husband or my friend. And I don't have to deal with my emotions before God now. I don't have to deal with my sin. I don't have to face any small difficulty in my life with any ounce of self-control. I just go. I angrily vent, complain to whoever I feel like. I pivot on a dime with the next distraction. So I tell guys to stop complaining to their wives about things going on in their lives in real time. Stop the impulse to turn when something bad happens and complain to your wife. Turn and pray. It's a different thing to take your anger and frustration to God. Taking them to God means you come under the microscope too. And then you have to change and grow. Complaining to your wife just highlights to her your emotional instability, your unwillingness to deal with the problems that you face. It's deeply unattractive. If I can't deal with my own problems, how can I help her with hers? You have to actually deal with them before God, with God's help. And I'm not saying you don't take your problems and struggles to your wife and share them. I'm not saying you don't need her help, you do. She wants to know what's going on, she wants to help. All I'm saying is stop whining. 
Stop whining. Turn to God first. Deal with your heart before God. Be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Take your time. Pray. Ask God to examine your heart and your motives. When I'm having trouble, like really having trouble, I go for a walk or I actually pull out a literal notebook and I physically write prayers to God and work out what I'm dealing with before God with literal pen and paper. And most of the time I discover that I'm just being selfish. What happens when we're quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger? If we stop trying to assert our rights and our prerogatives and our point of view, if we try to understand before we demand to be understood, what happens is it turns out people are often a lot less malicious than we assume they are. How many conflicts in your life would resolve themselves if instead of thinking first about yourself and what you deserve and escalating a situation, you took more time to understand the other person's point of view? Sometimes we get triggered, we get angry, we jump to conclusions, we get defensive, we get self-protective, and we don't have the full picture. A little patience, a little space, a little benefit of the doubt, a little willingness to listen and understand goes a long way. Sometimes we just don't have the full picture. We need to understand what other people are going through. That car weaving in and out of traffic could just be a reckless jerk, probably is. Might also be a dad trying to get his daughter to the hospital, and the reality is you don't know. You don't know anything. You've told yourself a story that justifies your lack of self-control, that makes you the good guy and them the bad guy, but you don't know. The guy who was 10 minutes late to help set up this morning could have been being lazy or he could have gotten some awful news. Could have spilled his coffee down his shirt and pants on the way to church and had to turn around. You just don't know, unless you ask, unless you listen, unless you try to understand first before jumping to conclusions. How much of your frustrations and difficulties would disappear if somebody took the time to listen and understand you and to make you feel heard and understood? If at work, if your boss made you feel heard and understood, your husband or your wife, how much of your anxieties and temptations to be angry would just go away? When that does happen to you, when someone actually listens and you feel heard and understood, how do you feel about the person who makes you feel that way? Person who took the effort, took the time, asked good questions, listened to the answers. Make you feel pretty good, right? So then why wouldn't you want to be that person? Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. If you don't deal with your emotions and your anger, it will come out in filthy behavior and rampant wickedness. What we feel becomes what we say, becomes what we do. Instead, James says you have to put that type of behavior away. You need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And that listening is not just listening to other people, is it? It's listening to God and receiving his word. Much of our growth starts by listening. 
We have to hear others, but more than that, we have to be listening to and hearing the Word of God. The Bible is God's Word. It's what God has to say about our situations and our circumstances. It's wisdom for the trials that we face. But wisdom doesn't lie in listening alone. Wisdom is, is not simply knowing the right course of action. Wisdom is also the will to do it, to act. The problem is many of us love to study the Bible for information, for knowledge, but not for actual wisdom. Because wisdom requires action. We like to fill our heads up with stuff and theology and things we can know without regard for what God would have us do. It makes all of our godliness, our piety come down to how many big words I know and how much I can talk about theology and how much knowledge I can prove I have. But Paul, the apostle, and the theological genius of the New Testament says this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And James puts it this way in a warning, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what some of us do when we come to the Bible is we throw up a wall. We read the Bible, but we don't let the Bible read us and penetrate our hearts. James says the Bible's a mirror. It doesn't just teach us things about God. It shows us ourselves. It reveals our hearts. It reveals our sins and our motives and what God requires of us and what God would have us do. And it empowers us to live a life free from sin. And James says, some of you, you come to the mirror and you look at it and you see your hair is sticking up and back and your face is dirty, you got boogers hanging out of your nose, and you think, huh, something's wrong with this mirror. This mirror must be dirty. That's not what I think I look like. You walk away, you forget what you saw, and you say, yeah, that was, well, that was weird. What a weird experience. I'm the star of my own movie. I'm the main character. I'm awesome. So clearly, if that's not what I see in the mirror, I don't know. That ain't it. That's not the image I have of myself. That mediocre person who needs to like wash his face and brush his teeth and comb his hair and wipe his nose can't be me. James says the Bible's a mirror. It's accurate. It's perfect. It shows us for what we are. We either accept it and work on what we see or we walk away and forget and believe a lie. And when we do that, when we're committed to reading the Bible and playing the Christian, but never actually changing, what happens is we try to turn the Bible from a mirror into a microscope or a telescope. It's going to reveal sin. We don't want it to reveal our sin. We just try to like flip it outside so we see the sins of other people. We see the sins of Washington, D.C. or Hollywood, just not me. Same is true of sermons, Right? Preaching of the word is God's word to you, from the pastor, the shepherd God's placed over you. If you're here this morning, God has something to say to you, through me. Something to say to you, not just your kids, not just your husband or your wife, not the person on the other side of the room, but you. 
And one of the marks of true godliness is your willingness to meekly receive the words of men as the words of God. That's how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that's not that everything I say up here is infallible or without sin. It's full of fallibility and sin, promise. I'm not God. Only the Bible's perfect and infallible, right? But I am speaking to you as your pastor who loves you. And God has things to say to you this morning. And one of them is be humble and listen to the idiot in the pulpit. Have you ever felt called out in a sermon? I don't know how many times I've had people come up to me after a sermon and said, you know, with that kind of knowing look, like, I know you were talking about me. I know that you know that I know that you were talking about me, and I'm over here like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Sometimes they're angry, like, I cannot believe that you would call me out so clearly and obviously. Everybody in the church knew you were talking about me, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I promise, I think about you, I pray for you, I hold you in my heart, I love you, I consider what I think you need to hear on a Sunday. I pray for you while I'm writing and preparing my sermons, and most all of the time, when somebody comes and says, I was talking about them, I'm surprised. I wasn't thinking about that person at that moment. Sometimes I am. Most often I'm not. My mind's in another place. It's thinking about somebody else. And most often, you know who I'm preaching to? Just me. Just me. Thinking about myself and what I need to hear. What do you think I've been thinking about as we've been talking about trials? That's not hard. That's not rocket science. That doesn't mean, that does not mean that when I was speaking to me, God wasn't speaking to you. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't speaking to you and calling you out in that moment. That's how you ought to hear it. We all ought to have moments, I hope, like that in every sermon, every time we come to the Bible, every time we read God's word, every time we sit under the preaching of God's word, where we feel like God's dealing directly with us, with our hearts. And then we need to take that and receive it with meekness and learn from it and grow. That's what godliness is. So here's James. This is about all James has to say. You're listening to this, you're reading the Bible, you're coming to church, you're listening to sermons. Don't just hear it. Do it. Obey it. Listen. And learn. And obey. And grow. Uh, Question. How many of you are aware that our church is reformed in its theology? Let's show of hands. Yeah, okay. How many of you know what that means? Yeah. Uh, if you're accustomed to other Reformed churches, you might not know that coming in. We don't try to signal it. Sometimes we try to counter-signal it. It's not that we're ashamed of our Reformed heritage. I read Calvin. Every, I've got Calvin's commentaries like here right now. I've read John Calvin coming into this sermon. But here's the way that t- things tend to work in the world of Reformed churches. Reformed churches, reformed people tend to be intellectuals. And that means that their minds and their brains tend to outrun their hearts. You get excited about God. 
You learn a lot about God fast. You learn a lot about the Bible fast. You learn a lot more than you know what to do with. And then you have a problem. Now there's a big disparity between what you know about God and what the Bible says and what you are mature enough to handle and actually do and obey. And you don't know how to deal with it. And so what do you do? You put a wall between your head and your heart. And then eventually you turn godliness into knowledge and you become a hypocrite. Where godliness consists in being right instead of doing right. And that's why so many of the most intense Christian keyboard warriors are in our theological camp, because we're right. And we are. We really are, most of the time. But that's not the point. It's not the point. God wants more from us than being right. So we're not that kind of Reformed church, because the truth is we all do need to learn more about God, right? And much more... We need to learn how to practice and obey what we know. Theology will change you, but theological knowledge alone, if it doesn't penetrate and transform your heart, will not fix you and it will not solve your problems. It'll just become another excuse, another place to hide, another fig leaf to cover the nakedness of your life. The true knowledge of God is the heart of our faith, but true knowledge of God transforms It leads to action and obedience. True faith is faith that acts, faith that obeys, faith that works, faith that loves. Because you're not blessed if you simply hear the word of God. You're blessed if you do it. Remember how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount? The man who built his house on the rock is is the man who hears these words of mine, period. The man who builds his house on the rock is the man who hears these words of mine and does them. So what does it look like to obey God's words? James says it's actually really simple. It's actually really simple. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The man who cannot bridle his tongue, who has no self-control, who lives his life speaking in his anger, who is slow to listen and quick to speak, his religion is worthless. Doesn't matter how deep his theology is, doesn't matter how well he provides for his family, doesn't matter how faithful he is at church, the man who hasn't begun to exercise self-control, his religion is worthless. He's not begun to act like a Christian. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here's what he's saying. Ultimately, real faith has two outcomes. It serves the weak and the vulnerable and the afflicted, those who are hurting, those who cannot protect and provide for themselves, defend themselves, looks outward to the weak, And it makes you holy and pure from the inside out. And it protects you from being defiled by this world and the evil that's in it. It's both. It's your heart. It's your emotions. It's the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Working itself out in love for the poor and the needy. And it is both together. It is both together. 
As you grow, as you mature, as you're given the fruit of the Spirit, you become strong. And you have a responsibility to use that strength to protect the weak and the vulnerable. And to see that modeled, all you have to do is look to Jesus. Jesus, when he preaches, he raises the standard of God's holiness. He addresses the sins of our hearts. You go and you read the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't be angry. If you're angry, you've already committed murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, your lust is adultery. And then you watch all the people that he loves and helps and cares for and heals who come to him lost and blind and lame and needy. And he never turns away anybody who comes to him. And that's it. That's just what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to deal with our hearts and we're supposed to love others. And what we do is we respond to the inconveniences of our lives by getting angry and looking for people to blame and we become stained. And we're no good to anybody. Not even ourselves, not our own families, much less the widow and the orphan. Or... We skip over dealing with our hearts and we jump straight to the widow and the orphan and we forget the theology and we forget the self-control and we just try to stack good deeds on top of each other and make a big show of caring for the widow and the orphan while being totally stained by the world. And neither of those are real living faith. They're not Christianity. So here's what James says. It's my, first, my summary of the first chapter. When hard things come, here's what you're gonna be tempted to do. You're going to be tempted to turn to stuff, to fix it, to distract yourself from it, to blame God for the hard things in your life. You're going to be tempted to give in to your sin and to be angry because you feel impotent and powerless in the face of your circumstances, and you don't have the wisdom to navigate it. And then you're going to become a hypocrite, and your godliness is just going to be words because you don't have the substance of it in your heart or your life. And you're going to be so oriented to yourself and your problems, you're going to forget about all the people around you who have real problems. And if this is the way you deal with the hard things and the way that you live your life, James says, your religion's worthless. It's all talk. All your talk is nothing more than fig leaves to cover the nakedness of the fact that you don't have real faith. That's the pattern of fake Christianity. But there's a different path. And it's instead of getting angry because a hard thing out of our control happened that we don't understand, we train ourselves to turn to God and rejoice and count it joy and thank God and be grateful for the opportunity to grow and become more like Jesus. We see it as an opportunity to reset old habits and patterns and to ask God for wisdom to work through it all well, to say no to sin, to see bad patterns and temptations coming, to avoid temptation, to avoid getting angry, to avoid letting our mouths run, to avoid turning to stuff and looking for somebody to blame our problems on and instead turn to God with gratitude, pray for wisdom, resolve to endure and watch our endurance muscles grow so that we become more like Jesus, more steady, more strong, more stable, more self-controlled, more content, more godly, no matter the circumstances of our lives. And wherever we're coming from, then rich or poor, high or low, we identify with Jesus in the midst of the struggle. We grow to become more like him. And we do that in the end, God blesses us. He gives us what we need. He helps us grow. And we receive strength and endurance and grace from God. And we turn and give it and share it with others who need it. 
Instead of wallowing in self-pity, we recognize those who are truly suffering. Instead of insulating ourselves with our stuff, we use our stuff to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. The widow and orphan in their distress. Instead of indulging ourselves, we become truly strong, internally strong, so that we can strengthen the weak and the needy, be a shelter from the storm. Like Jesus, that's the work that God blesses. And in the end, we inherit the crown of life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as each of us face the things that we are facing, dealing with the trials and the difficulties of our lives, that you would give us faith to turn to you with joy and to endure. I pray that we would see our anger, that we would see our fear, and that we would turn from our wickedness and that we would turn to Jesus and that we would grow. I pray that you would transform us from the inside out and that you would help us to love and care for the weak and the needy and the lowly, to be fathers to the fatherless. Fill this church with strong men who are self-controlled and who are fathers to the fatherless. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.